Right now on Matter of Fact. We can't work, we can't pay. The rent's due again, and nearly 10 million people can't afford to pay it. I'm always robbing Peter to pay Paul and sold anything that I've had that's worth selling to try to make ends meet. Leaving landlords looking for relief too. This is uh, probably 20% of my income that I lost. What will it take to save America from another housing crisis? Then, did Donald Trump change journalism forever? Totally fake news. The fake news. The fake news. The fake news. The fake news. Called the enemy of the people for telling the truth. What lessons do you think journalists have really learned? Will that change how the press covers President Biden? Plus, how to pivot during a pandemic. What's going on? Powered by workers with disabilities, the one thing this business did to stay open when the world closed. And the life and legacy of Hank Aaron. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The rent is due again, and nearly 10 million people won't be able to pay it. Yet home prices and home sales are soaring. Inequality has been the hallmark of this pandemic and of the recovery. COVID-19 disproportionately affects black and brown communities, and economic recovery is unevenly out of reach for them. Many people will tell you they never thought they'd be in this position. People like Darlene Turner in the Bronx. When we spoke with Darlene last summer, she was four months behind on her rent. I work for a restaurant down in the city, which has closed down due to the pandemic. I worked for my whole 34 years at my hotel, and I've never been unemployed, so all this is the first time for me. I've been living in this building, in this apartment, for like 34 years. According to a new analysis from the Urban Institute, the typical delinquent renter owes nearly $6,000. That's including utilities and late fees that keep piling up. Jim Parrott is a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute and co-authored the recent report on unpaid rent in America. Jim, thanks for joining me. We know that one in six renters are behind in their payments, that they risk eviction, uh, and that even those who were able to keep their jobs during the pandemic are, are struggling. There's a huge number of people who have almost zero dollars in savings and, and actually not a, a lot of food if they don't uh, have income coming in or if there are other pressures on that income. So... Uh, renters in particular have much less savings on average um, than others. You've got, uh, even before the crisis, renters were saving on average about $440 a year as opposed to $10,000 for, for homeowners. So they've got um, very little to fall back on in a time of stress. So when their revenue stream takes a hit as, it's, as it is right now, um, they're much more inclined to be forced to uh, resort to, to government help, um, to relying on friends and family, to relying on credit. Uh, and so you're seeing right now that time of stress and you're seeing them sort of move pretty quickly through that buffer. What happens to people who are landlords? It's a really an untold part of all this, which is the vast majority of landlords in the country are sort of so-called mom and pop landlords. They're not the big corporate landlords that have, you know, enormous high rises that are renting out the folks. And the solution to date has been largely uh, an eviction moratorium so that the solution for renters has been to tell them it's okay, you don't have to pay for the time being, 
uh, you won't be evicted. Um, but but that's not a solution for the landlords. That just means their revenue is going to dry up until uh, and unless some other relief comes in uh, to the picture. So it's a big strain on landlords all across the country, for sure. And it's not exactly a solution to just not have to pay at this moment. I mean, there are people, I think the average is something like six, between $4,500 and $6,000 in, in, in back rent. And if you look at the financial crisis from 2008, 7 million households were impacted, foreclosed upon. And those people still recovering from that crisis, the numbers are, are higher now. What do you expect will be the long-term impact of this crisis? As you say, there were about 7 million folks that went into foreclosure over a five-year period in the height of the, the economic um, recession. Uh, and we're talking about 10 million folks uh, that might face uh, eviction or, or, um, or strain from owing back rent all at once. And so the, the, the level of stress uh, coming out of this is in some ways more acute than what we faced back then. And you're talking about millions of folks uh, that could be pushed out onto the street in the height of a pandemic. And that's something that um, you don't reverse the damage from uh, from quickly or readily. So we're in the middle of a crisis, but it doesn't really get covered like it's a, a, a crisis that we're seeing unfolding in front of us, I think. I think the reason is we've had this eviction moratorium in place for a while, and it's going to go through the end of March. So as a result, you just don't see uh, the distress that we've talked about. You don't see the effect of 10 million folks uh, who aren't covering their um, their rental payments, their utilities. You've got another 8 million folks that claim they might not pay next month or the next month. But the moment that eviction moratorium gets lifted, all that stress is going to flow through the system in the form of evictions, homelessness, economic distress at a community level. So um, if, if we don't see relief at a pretty sizable level pretty soon, um, it'll go from being um, the kind of issue none of us see to the kind of issue you'll see on the front page of every paper um, day in and day out, unfortunately. Jim Parrott is with the Urban Institute. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Next, tired of politics as usual? Why one leading media critic says journalists are part of the nation's problems. That's what people care about. Is the government solving my problems, our problems? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Today, we pose some questions about challenges facing journalism in a post-Trump era. To say former President Trump created a hostile relationship with the press is a complete understatement. The media was vilified under Trump, stamped as enemies of the people. Even the most fact-based reporting was labeled fake news in a world with alternative facts. Were there lessons learned by the media in covering President Trump? Jay Rosen teaches journalism at New York University. Jay, it's nice to see you. Thanks for talking with me. What lessons do you think journalists have really learned over the last four and a half years? I think they learned there are limits and that they're going to have to start saying this is a lie. Uh, I think they also learned right at the end, maybe when it was too late, that they're going to have to stick up for democracy. Um, and I think they eventually did that, meaning after Trump tried to claim that he had actually won, even though everybody knew he hadn't, that's when it finally kicked in, I think, for a lot of journalists that they could lose the entire thing. And they became very pro-democracy. But I think 
learning that that has to come much earlier in the process is another part of it. You said back in 2016, you said that people who want fact-based journalism are going to have to choose it. In a way, what we've had over the last five years has been the unbuilding of a democratic public. A huge portion of the public began to get its information about Trump from Trump, which is an authoritarian news system up and running in you know what used to be the country with the freest press in the world. So I think a large portion of the American public has chosen exit from the news system as a whole, better coverage by the Washington Post or CNN or MSNBC is not going to address those people. They're gone from the news system as a whole. And so that's a very difficult problem. I don't think anybody at the moment knows how to solve that. We have lots of conversations about objectivity. Where do you fall on this conversation? Because I think it relates to some of the frustration that people have about journalism. They think journalists aren't objective. We would be better off as citizens, the press would be better off if it began to earn trust under a different claim, which is, here's where we're coming from. We all have views of the world, but there are some objective facts and we've discovered what they are. And um, we are specialists in verification. We, we know when things have been verified and when they haven't. And I think some combination of high standards of verification, high standards in transparency, saying here's where we're coming from would be a stronger basis for trust. It seemed to me that a lot of, you know, Trump would tweet and a lot of reporting was sort of palace intrigue, explaining what was happening behind the scenes and chaos. And from all indications, a few days in, it looks like the Biden administration is going to be very different on that front. How do you think that's going to reflect in the content then that people are seeing? I think the shift has to be to problem solving. That's what people care about. Is the government solving my problems, our problems? It's also that the problems that the government now has to solve involve knowledge domains of their own that don't have anything to do with politics. And so we need in the Washington Press Corps, in the briefing room, people who have expertise in science, in medicine, um, in economics, in rebuilding a country, uh, and even in how democracies die, for example. Uh, and our Washington correspondents, especially White House correspondents, what is their expertise? Their expertise is the game of politics. And that has hurt us. Jay Rosen, thank you for talking with me. You're so welcome. Still ahead, how you can go abroad while still at home. But first, things are looking up for a vertical farm run by people with disabilities. Our employees will be our teachers of tomorrow. How this farm grew a new business model to survive the pandemic. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. From local shops and restaurants to top businesses in the world, surviving the pandemic often means finding new ways to work, pivoting to a new business model. A plan for short-term survival that calls for long-term resilience. One business that's pivoted is Vertical Harvest, a farm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We made our first visit there last winter as part of a partnership with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. 
Our correspondent, Leonie Lacani, takes us inside a business that grows fresh food and jobs. Daybreak in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. A winter storm is brewing, but Micah Miller is heading to work at Vertical Harvest. She's prepping for a shift in the packing room today, and she's eager to show me around. These are your lettuces? Yes. And then what do you do? Do you separate them? Um, we also get rid of the bad leaves. Okay. This is one of many tasks Micah's cultivated since joining the farm, soon after it opened in 2016. The farm's goal was to grow lettuce, microgreens, and tomatoes for the community, but with one special mission in mind. We have 39 employees at Vertical Harvest, 19 of whom have a different ability. So they had some form of intellectual, physical, or developmental disability. Caroline Croft had long worked with young adults with varying abilities and found little opportunities for them beyond school. So co-founder Nona Yehya, an architect, decided to build a farm with this group of workers in mind. Growing different kinds of crops also accommodates different kinds of abilities. So we've been able to pair the individual with a job and the job to the individual. So growing lettuce, it's something that you do over and over the same thing. And so it's really well suited to people who really like to be able to concentrate on what they're doing and be able to really be perfectionists. Micah's finished sorting the leaves and she's on to packing them. Elsewhere on the farm, pruning and clipping, planting. Before coming here, few had prospects of any kind of career, much less one in a state-of-the-art farm. I used to be the housekeeper at the Elk Country Inn. I had to fold clean towels, carry bags, do sheets. I even had to water the plants every morning and the afternoon during the week. I got sick of it, so I quit and I applied for work here. And he hasn't looked back since. Johnny started as a trainee, but now manages other employees and even conducts tours of the farm. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good, what are you up to? Oh, I'm just seeding some sunflowers. Oh, wow. This is a hydroponic farm, meaning plants here grow without soil through nutrients dissolved in the water. It's cutting edge technology, which means the skills Johnny and his colleagues learn here are at the forefront of farming. It's such a nascent industry that there aren't many people with hydroponic farming skills. Our employees will be our teachers of tomorrow. Fiona Lakani for Matter of Fact in Jackson, Wyoming. I spoke with Nona Yahia to see how Vertical Harvest has been able to stay in business during the pandemic. Nona, thanks for talking with me. You've been able to survive and, and you've been able to keep all of your employees by doing a pretty sharp pivot. Explain for me how you've retooled your business. Very quickly, you know, the restaurants in our community, like in many other communities, shut down. That was half of our customer base. So that was a big challenge. Um, but we knew that uh, we're a local town here in the middle of the mountains. And um, all of our food, pretty much 98% of it is imported. And a lot of that was actually disturbed at the beginning of the pandemic. So we were the only local uh, you know, producer that could provide fresh greens to the community. So we talked to our grocery store partners and we uh, increased our orders there. We created very quickly a curbside pickup program and then created a whole direct-to-consumer program. So it was really about strengthening um, why we became a farm in the first place, which was to respond to community need. You took PPP funds um, 
But I'm curious about uh, a, a bigger question. I know that was helpful immediately, but yes, <laughs> I think a lot of what you're describing is like leadership and mindset. We had always been uh, looking towards launching a new microgreen line and had been positioning the greenhouse to increase our microgreens. So we had a high margin product that we knew how to grow with high nutritional value that really was appropriate for what people in their households were going through that we could concentrate on. And so we have fundamentally uh, changed you know, our product line due to this pandemic. Thank you so much for that update. To see the full interview about the company's pandemic plan, go to matteroffact.tv, search Vertical Farm. Coming up, the Vatican goes virtual. But first, why Hank Aaron's legacy is about more than just home runs. This week, the world said a final farewell to baseball Hall of Fame legend, hammering Hank Aaron. He died on January 22nd, natural causes, at the age of 86. He was considered a great player and a kind and generous person. His fight for racial equality is part of his legacy, maybe even more so than his 624 doubles, 755 home runs, and 240 stolen bases over a 23-year career in the major leagues. Aaron was known for having grace and decency when the country didn't extend the same to him or people who looked like him. In 1974, when he surpassed Babe Ruth's record of 714 home runs, he set a Guinness Book of World Records for the most mail received by a private citizen, nearly 3,000 letters a day, almost a million that year. Much of it was hate mail, which he kept to remind him that there's not a whole lot that's changed and how far we still have to go. Aaron was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1982. Now, this year, no one will get that honor. After the Baseball Writers Association of America decided no player had the merits on the field or off, Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens were the closest in the vote count. This is the ninth appearance on the ballot for all three. When Aaron was elected, he received 97.8% of the vote in his first try. When we come back, a new view of the Sistine Chapel, customized just for you. And finally, tour one of the most iconic places in the world without even leaving your couch. You can now get 360-degree virtual tours of the Vatican Museums. They've been empty because of the pandemic. Without the millions of visitors in the way, you can get a closer look at Michelangelo's masterpiece, the Sistine Chapel. The painted ceiling is a showstopper, but there are tours available for the other chapels. Or check out areas that are normally off limits to the public, like Raphael's rooms, created for Pope's Julius II and Leo X. There are 26 distinct areas in the Vatican Museum, so you have plenty of time to take in the sights and hopefully ease your wanderlust. You can check it out by going to the Vatican Museum's official website. It's in Italian, so I won't give it to you, but just Google Vatican Museums. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. We'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.